0: Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. If you want to get in on the fun, then why not pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app, and make sure you share it with your friends as well so they can be inspired too. On tonight's episode, we go deep on data driven product development and how, bereft of any way of understanding what his customers wanted, One man decided to solve that problem not once, but three times, ending up running his own startup and taking it out to the world. We talk about why customer centricity has to be data driven, whether AI and machine learning is actually useful or just something you use on your pitch decks, and touch on the importance of ethics and data privacy in AI. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So, my guest tonight is Corbinian Span. Corbinian's a startup founder and head of data who hates jobs without a meaning, so I've no idea why he's not a product manager. Corbinian started out at Harvard studying linguistics and Semitic languages, including Akkadian, before eventually landing in big data and natural language processing with his own startup in SAS, aiming to predict customer preference in near time for your brand and offering. I just hope some of his customers are from Mesopotamia to make all that hard work at Harvard pay off. Hi, Corbinian, how are you tonight?
1: Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me, and I'm fine.
0: Super. So first things first, you're the founder, managing director, and head of data for Insas, Yes. based down in Munich. Mm -hmm. So who are Insas, and what problem do you or they solve?
1: Insas is a startup focusing on the aggregation of customer feedback from various sources. So let me explain a little bit where this whole thing comes from. When I was working for my former employer, W.L. Gore, back in the day, four years back, I had the job to create dashboards. Dashboards for marketing, dashboards for sales, and dashboards for accounting. Uh, because we believed back in the day that it would be a good idea to aggregate all kinds of data sources to understand how our business really works, besides the kind of strange looking back Excel table formats. So we've been aggregating a hell lot of data sources, and uh, believe it or not, it took me two years to come up with an aggregation of more than fifty data sources from sales, business and marketing. And in the end, when most of the dashboards were ready, beautiful dashboards built in Tableau, easy to scale. Everybody could see what's going on, right? How many Gore-Tex jackets we sold, for instance, in several countries and uh, our marketing activities. But there was one thing missing, and that was the customer feedback itself. So basically, no problem. Obviously, we had a lot of market research going on, and you have been working for GFK, so you know what I'm talking about, right? Lots of PowerPoints.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: How, how do you integrate PowerPoints in Tableau dashboards? Wait a second. That does not work. Okay. So mm, maybe user interviews. Yeah. But if you look at it, there were really few user interviews. Yeah. Maybe hundreds, something like this. Not mm-hmm. such a lot, right? So what what about, uh, we thought about, what what about the comments on Quartex jackets in Amazon, for instance, or in other shops globally? There were amazing, a ton of Amazon uh, feedbacks. So we thought about, we should do something about this, right? And then we thought about how we process this data, and obviously, we did it manually. So I thought, well, it's crazy. How many interns do we have to to basically manually harvest those comments, <laughs> four to five, right? So just copy-paste it again into Excel. So I thought, no, that cannot be. Let's have an automation. Let's have a software doing this, right? And so this was the moment when I was looking at solutions from IBM, from Microsoft, obviously, and thought that they could do the job. And as we know, those companies, they always say the sales guys, at least, yes, of course, we can do that. That's easy. you know. It doesn't cost a lot of money. <laughs> and then in the end, when you try it out, you see, no, it does not really do the job. The summarization of text is not really precise and coming up with various kind of keywords that you cannot use. So that did not do the trick. And this was the moment when I started to think about, okay, I will build my own software. So I got a little bit of money from my company. I hired about four to five guys in our external project team. And then we started and kicked off Insas basically. So this was the first version of the software to collect, back in the day, just gore gloves, feedbacks, building a dashboard. You know how it is with POCs, right? So you have this kind of strange mobile-first dashboard, doesn't look too fancy. And then we went to the head of product and uh, showed her what we did. And we said, okay, um, how about taking this dashboard with yourself to our partners? And she did it. And she basically took the dashboard to the partner companies and said, do you know what the people say about your gloves? And obviously, they did not know, right? One thing that we find out, pretty ridiculous, but still, the gloves were too small. So basically, they had the wrong sizing. If you have the wrong sizing and you buy a Gore-Tex glove, which is about 60 to 70 quid, I guess, you are not too amused if the Gore-Tex glove is too small or too big. So this was something that we could find out immediately and simply change the sizing information. This was the moment where I thought, okay, wait a minute. This can be really interesting for other industries as well.
0: Okay, but that's interesting, though, because it sounds like there you've almost started out as an entrepreneur. You've been building software whilst working for another company. You've got your Tiger team together. Yeah. You've come up with your MVP. You've, you feel like you've got something, right? Yeah. But presumably your contract with this company meant that they owned that yes absolutely yeah so how did you unpick that i um uh, basically left the
1: prototype and everything back with the company and so i I decided after some time that uh, i would really like to try this out you know so uh, i'm not (laughs) not 25 anymore so um, i thought okay (laughs) if you really want to found a startup you have to do it now and uh, so i left the company i quit and left everything there and then I went to Microsoft and wanted to talk to Microsoft and say, okay, guys, what do you think about this? You do have this API for text analytics. Can we do something there? And they were very enthusiastic and said, yes, of course, come over. So me and another developer, we had a kind of three months trial with Microsoft, uh, redoing it again and see if we can sell it. And uh, yes, actually, we could sell it. This was nice. And uh, then I thought, okay, this is kind of an extended proof of concept. Let's do it a third time. <laughs> and this is, uh, yeah. In SARS now. So in April 2019, we founded the company and did it again from scratch.
0: So every single time has been from scratch, just yes. hoping desperately that you remember the things that you did last time.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Do I do you really Yeah? It's kind of um it's not when when I was at that point, obviously yeah, obviously you're very worried that you forget something or that you know you the code is secured and so. But the funny thing is and um, now my advice would be to other founders, completely forget everything and start from the scratch because you don't need it. That's <laughs> an interesting thing. It's a very interesting thing because you, it's kind of uh, somehow that the human brain is somehow wired in a strange way to not try to forget something. But that's the wrong thing, right? You should forget even, right? You should delete the cache and start from the scratch because everything will come automatically. So I think, no, I'm pretty convinced our product is way better than it was back in the day, obviously. But it's not like that I took any source code or anything from the core product. None, basically.
0: Nothing. So are you the sole founder, or did that developer that you took with you become like a a co-founder? Or Yeah, a co-founder. So you're the co-founder with... Yeah,
1: back in the day, we were three guys,
0: exactly. We were a sales guy, a tech guy, and
1: myself, the founder with the idea. Because as you you know, I'm not a product guy. Yeah, I have to confess this. I'm uh, more like a linguistics guy. Coming from languages, and I was always fond of languages and software. And I was always convinced that you could do such amazing things with, with this combination. And I saw this in my studies. And uh, so um, I always needed tech support to really build the product. But uh, I'm also with this, I'm, I'm pretty happy, I must say, because uh, it's it's not good if one founder, in my eyes, can do everything alone. Huh. It's always good to have a team.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But I think that's really interesting, because although obviously you say you're not a product guy yourself, and obviously your background is clear on that, but at the same time, it feels like you've kind of got some of that in you, because you sat there, you saw a problem, you looked at what the quickest way to validate that you could solve that problem would be, and then you went out and built it and and solved it. So obviously, you do have some product manager in you somewhere. But do you think that that's always been there as part of your makeup or is that something that you developed over your working career? Like, have you always been kind of a problem solver and someone who thinks around things or, or did you come to that late?
1: No, um, if, if you put it like this, I've always been a problem solver, right? So uh, if you are in several situations in your life, like uh, I left after my final school exams, I left to Germany for 13 months um, uh, and lived in Israel. And uh, there were many, many situations, problematic situations, let's call it like this, that I had to solve. So I always loved that, yeah, going a little bit, the kind of adventure, tapping into the unknown. And that was always my, my topic. So I love that, yeah.
0: Obviously, the company, as you say, I, I think it's a couple of years old now, give or take. Yeah. Would you say that you're already at a stage where you've attained product market fit? Or is that still a journey that you're going through?
1: Yeah, definitely the latter. It's still a journey because um, we basically did, uh, in my eyes, the most crazy thing. You know, you can you can use an existing technology with a new team, and you can have a, a a new technology with an existing team. But we had a new technology with a new team and a new product, so everything was new. So um basically, if you ask me, what what the core of Insas is. What I described earlier is a kind of what we do and how we do it, but the why, and that's interesting, is the data-driven product development. So I still look for a way how companies can design data-driven their products. Now you might ask why, because what I saw in many companies, not only my last company, is that it's unfortunately true that I don't know, There's the study, you know this 90% of products fail yeah, or 70%. Yeah, nobody knows exactly. But I have to say that there's something to it. And I would love to see the product teams and service teams would have a data-driven approach to that. So, um, yes, I'm still looking for a way for the product market fit. How should this product work? That companies would really use it.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think we'll come back to the data-driven stuff in a bit because i definitely got a couple of questions about that. But I also wanted to query a little bit because you're the head of data for INSAS. And your background obviously was in linguistics. And obviously, there's some AI and machine learning in and around linguistics, because when you start talking about natural language processing and all the cool things that you can do with word vectors and stuff these days, but yes, that's still maybe a bit of a stretch to go from one to the other. Have you, as the head of data, had to go through and really skill up and become a data scientist? Or are you more head of data in a kind of strategic, this is what I want, and other people have build it for me kind of sense?
1: again the latter um i think uh, i'm more a data strategist this is how i would call myself most people don't understand that so i don't use this term um what do i mean by this so first of all there are two two questions so let me answer the, the first one so how do i come to be a head of data overall when i was doing my phd in Semitic languages i had a very ambitious task to basically compare lots of antique literature parts and that could only be done with software. This was the point where I met the guys uh, from Columbia University, which were amazing and helped me with their software, kind of a Google for antique literature. It was a really amazing project. And then we did that. And one thing came to another. And since then, I'm working um, on the tipping point of literature and um, text and software. So I did in my career a lot of SEO, search engine optimization. So basically trying to help uh, website owners uh, to be found in Google. This was my job, and that has a lot to do with text and how text can be analyzed by search engines and so forth. And I said, so this journey of mine uh, from uh, basically the PhD text and the very early machine learning kind of algorithms into search engine optimization, search engine advertising into my job at Gore, which were then more, much more big data focused because I wanted to understand what one could really do with software um, and with big data. So this is how it fits together basically
0: and how involved are you in the day-to-day product management in the company so obviously i know that you have a head of product a mutual friend of ours yeah so are you as you say primarily focusing on this data strategy the product strategy the general value proposition and you then kind of leave the product management principles and fundamentals to the team or are you very hands-on and kind of getting stuck in all the time you know you're an early company right
1: i would say i'm still very hands on um because uh, basically as you as i told you as my idea that we are working on here so how can we um build a product to design data driven products how should that look like so this is still uh, my idea for instance we uh, think about in the moment features how to match our existing data with a kind of a customer journey so those are things that i'm tackling day by day so always think about how can we do this how can we take existing concepts in the heads of sales and marketing and product managers like the funnel concept or the customer journey? How can we transform this into a kind of a product that somebody looks at and has a picture in his mind, an image, and says, yes, this is something that I really need because now I can do something that this concept of customer journey. So this is, I would say, yes, I'm very hands-on still. And as a data strategist, I'm always thinking about how can we find the right data sources? What has to be in the data? How clean has this data to be? Yeah, This is the major question always. Yeah. So uh, in regards to typo and grammatic expression now, there are some challenges,
0: yeah, I think it's always been challenging to get really good, meaningful, reliable stuff out of text, and obviously you know that too. I mean that's certainly been something that I've had to work with in the past as yeah as a product person as well, so I think it's really interesting trying to marry up some of the desires for really good, reliable results with a very probabilistic approach, so We'll come back to that in a bit, but it's definitely something which I've seen in, in the past, like trying to land uncertainty with clients and make them understand that it's better or at least as good as maybe some of the traditional approaches that they would have used before. <laughs> Actually, maybe we just talk about that now. Is that something you say, for example, that you're looking still for product market fit and trying to make sure that you can scale in the right ways? Are you finding it challenging trying to sell into maybe big traditional? enterprises who, for better or worse, are very traditional in their thinking? Or have you found it quite easy to find advocates and maybe some of the innovators in these companies that can help push your solution within their companies?
1: Yeah, in general, um, you always have to have an ambassador. That's true. And it's it's very hard for me to say this in general. I think there there are industries that are definitely more forced to innovate and there are industries that do not innovate so easy. And guess what? That depends on the product, right? So pretty clear. By the way, I would never say that those uh, concepts of uh, product market fit and scaling and like those ideas that are they are wrong. No, no, they are not even outdated. That's always a kind of a very strange and bizarre idea that just because, uh, for instance, we are working in an agile way um, we may not think about a waterfall. So I think personally that's wrong, right? So we have a kind of a huge set of instruments, and the more instruments we have for certain situations, the better it is. This is my take, right? first of all, so I'm not I'm never against anything old that is established and works well, but uh, coming back to your question, so is it really hard to sell in general to enterprises? Yes and no, so I said so for some industries, like hospitality, for instance, so they change fast, they have a lot of competition, right The uh, same goes for retail, though they have to change right, so they cannot stand still and now look at insurances, right Insurance is completely different animal. Because products are um, very established in the market, great brands, right? Good margins, I suggest, uh, <laughs> if you look into the reports. So why why should they change, right? So if you, look, if you talk to ambassadors in such companies, definitely they will have a complete different view, right? They will say, yeah, we innovate, but wait a second, yeah? So first of all, we are looking how that looks like, and then next year, maybe there's something going to happen. Which is, I completely understand that. Yeah, I'm not here to criticize anybody. No, of course not. That's that's clear, right? So this is how I would say that it depends on industry.
0: And you said before this call that customer centricity has to be data-driven. Now, if I run a data-driven SaaS company that does what you do, that's what I'd say as well. But what do you mean by that specifically, above and beyond what your company is offering? Or is that more of a general concept or very specific to what you're doing?
1: No, it's a it's a general concept, right? Think about the net promoter score. Net Promoter Score is definitely something. is It's, for me, the beginning of doing data-driven customer centricity. And it's a very established tool in the meantime, right? So It took some years, yes, of course. But uh, now, many companies, even insurances, use it to measure if they are on the right track. Very high level, right? I do have quite some criticism on Net Promoter Score. <laughs> but overall, I like the concept a lot. And that's exactly what I mean. So I more like have a problem when, when some people, some design geniuses, even if they are Steve Jobs, just say that things have to be like this and that. Obviously, he was really a genius. Yeah, He, he understood a lot of things better than most of them, most of the others. But still, you know, it's very problematic if, if one person kind of judges without looking at the consumers, at the users, at the preferences. This is my gut feeling.
0: Yeah, but there's obviously always this tension between gut feel and and data and sort of quantum qual data and yeah some of the decisions that you can and can't make off of those. I mean, do you think that gut feeling is completely off the table or do you think it just has to be a really healthy mix of the two?
1: Oh, yes, it has to be a healthy mix. So I still think that, like, for instance, our tool will never replace any great design. So that is is most of the time I had a lot of discussions in this regard that people said, yeah, but with your tool, there won't be any design or no, of course not. So um, I think that great designers, great product managers will use the tool basically to evaluate very fast the preference of consumers and to take decisions in regard to the data. But they could also take other decisions, right? So as a product manager, as a designer, you're not forced to listen to the data. Of course not. You just should have an idea, right? It's like in the end, it's like sitting in a car, right? So you can drive by gut feeling. All of us know that, right? So it's 50 (laughs) miles or 60 miles, but you can always check back. Is it really true, right? And that's it.
0: Yeah, I think the way that I've always tried to frame it when it comes to some of the things that you've just said around, for example, picking data out of a big sea of noise and getting that data out and having stuff to evaluate, you'd still do the final evaluation manually. You wouldn't make a $20 million decision off the back of one $49 a month tool or something like that. But it's a way of getting you to the things that are most promising to look at, right? Rather than being a complete replacement for the human decision-making process. Yeah, But obviously some people make some pretty bold claims like you said earlier. So I guess the battle's still to be won on that one. But we were talking earlier about using data for data-driven product development. And obviously you've got a lot of data skills in the company because that's the type of company you are. So do you feel that you've managed already to give yourself an edge with regards to trying to use data to effectively drive product decision making? Or is that still a journey? Or are you nowhere near that yet?
1: Again, it depends a little bit on the product. But yes, in some parts, we would be confident to support product decisions, because it's relatively easy to see what is important and what is not. So one basic feature of our software is that we kind of build a kind of a graph a spider graph where we have kind of the most important metrics of the company itself and in regard to service or product, right? Like product quality, pricing, problem solving and stuff like that. Most of our or some of our customers use this to um, kind of evaluate their USP. So their unique selling proposition. So they see if they have the same mindset of the USP like the customers, right? So. For instance, if the company is very driven by price, is this really the same reasoning for the users to decide for the product? So, in this regard, they can see, okay, there's a lot of positive sentiment, there's a lot of commenting, there's a lot of, there's basically a focus of talking around stuff that is definitely important. So, such things, yes, we support. If you ask me now, if we can go really, really granular, right, and having just a few voices um, talking about stuff, of course, then it gets really problematic. And again, I would say, we never we are we are not competing against classical market research. A lot focus groups, a lot all kind of 360 interviews. That makes a lot of sense. In my feelings, just not enough.
0: And one thing that comes up a lot in conversation, depending on who you're talking to, but it does come up quite a lot. Sometimes as a bit of a joke is like how the best use of things like AI and machine learning are as phrases on your funding slides to get you a bit more money when you're going for your next round. And that's obviously a little bit skeptical, but it is something that does come up and it is an opinion that some people have. Is it something that you've come up with when you've either been trying to sell this or when you've been trying to get funding or when you've told people at a barbecue what it is that you do or whatever, that the AI slash machine learning part of this is kind of just snake oil? Or do you think that you've managed to really land that this is a real thing with people?
1: Mm, yeah, it's a good, it's a good one. Yeah. So for me, basically looking from my German perspective, the hype of AI is a little bit over. <laughs> so uh, not a lot of people talk any longer about AI, and we try basically to avoid it. So you will not find a lot of mentioning of AI just uh, on the level of how we do stuff, because I think that's not the point, right? So yes, we are a company using AI, but I'm basically this is not my point, right? Data-driven product development is interesting to me. We use AI to do it. Full stop. Yes, we use machine learning and stuff, but the most important thing that most people oversee is that this is open source, most of it. So anyway, if you talk about intellectual property, it's for sure not algorithms, it's for sure not machine learning. So uh, I personally, uh, for me, it's just a tool. That's it.
0: Yeah, I've always been of the opinion that, certainly from a product management perspective, like sometimes you see, like, oh, I need an AI product manager or whatever. It's like, well, actually, what you need is someone who can identify the biggest problem that your customer has and work out with their engineers the best way to solve it at scale. And if that way of solving it at scale involves a room with a thousand monkeys on a thousand typewriters, as long as you can scale that, then that's your solution, right? It doesn't need to be some cool new algorithm. But I do think that sometimes people get either in love with the term AI in general, like because they think it makes them sound cool, or they from an engineering or technical perspective, get really in love with just some new algorithm that Google just bought out or something like that. And they think that they've got to use that now. And then I guess, and actually you've probably kind of answered it, but I'll ask you anyway, like you've said that you don't really sell yourselves as an AI business because you don't want to be kind of seen in that camp. So how do you resist the temptation then as a company to use meaningless tech just because it's cool? Because from a customer perspective, that shouldn't matter, right? But do you have that tension internally with your team to to always try and keep up with the Joneses on some of the tech?
1: Yeah, I have to revise this a little bit and be honest because we are part of the German AI landscape. And yes, of course, obviously, um, we are seen as an AI startup and we are an AI startup. So I cannot uh, basically hide that we are playing in this field. That would be ridiculous. On the other hand side, I'm not feeling too bad about it because we really apply machine learning. So we are not the ones who just using this and using a few open source algorithms. But uh, we really do have people who try to build up pipelines, and that's where the magic starts. So um, it's uh, the pipeline. It's how you basically combine stuff together to come up with the best solution, I would say. And obviously, what do you do with data itself? How do you treat the data? How do you clean the data? How do you train the machine learning? We have um, built our own annotation service, and I'm very proud on this. Because uh, annotating data and machine learning is the key to everything. Yes, I know now this is super boring. Yeah. But sorry, (laughs) that's the key. This is like the chef, you know, without uh, any kind of furniture or without an oven. This is crazy. Right. So if you don't have the basics, don't talk about it. And the annotation service, like how do you annotate? How do you train the data? How do you label them? That's basically the most important part. And that's, this is why I'm also kind of proud to say, yes, we are an AI startup. I always have my problems and my doubts about kind of buzzwords because buzzwords are most of the time dangerous because people misunderstand it or they're getting an impression that is not quite true. In the end, it's all, for me, I would say it's craftsmanship, right? That's what it is.
0: Yeah, it's funny though what you say about annotations and something obviously having worked in related fields before that I've seen as well. And it's almost like the, Dirty secret of ai backed startups that so much of this work is underpinned by the human effort of actually annotating and providing training data or validating unsupervised data or whatever and it's really funny because it's probably not that much of a secret because there's there are so many companies out there that their entire reason for living and being is to annotate data for other people's models It's like a whole industry of people just annotating data for other people to use it, it's like a whole whole new world and i just find it fascinating because everyone's sitting there thinking oh god this is the most exciting no humans type thing and obviously the algorithms to do it at scale once you've got the training data absolutely but there's so much human firepower underneath it it's that's never on any of the pitch decks right
1: yeah that's maybe coming back to a good old concept of scaling right so i think uh, that's a kind of uh, this is a very important point because that's there's a misunderstanding on scaling here so uh, <laughs> scaling doesn't mean scaling out of the box. You just have the idea and everything scales. No, I'm sorry. That's not true, right? It's like more like building a house or kind of, uh, kind of you have to have the architect. He has to have make up his plan, right? Then you can scale it, but you cannot scale before you even have something. That's a huge misunderstanding with tech startups in general that I see. is uh, or We are confronted with this with investors as well, so that they see yeah, everything has to scale like hell. Wait a second, if you do not have anything in advance, how do you want to scale that? So there's a good reason why it took us three years, which is quite a lot of time to come now to this stage where we are now, because it takes a lot of time to understand and really to build this data pipeline, to combine unsupervised methods and machine learning for the best outcome, right? So of course, everybody can do anything, right? This is also. I remember when I was working with Microsoft, right? Yeah, of course, the API of Microsoft is somehow great, but it's very generic. Yeah, you can throw anything against it, and there will be always an outcome. <laughs> but the question is, how good it is? The problem for me is, is, is Microsoft delivers like Google or Amazon. They, they have great APIs, but it's basically trash. So it's not. You cannot use it. Yeah. It's. Yeah, you know. I, I don't see the value of this tool. I'm very honest here.
0: Yeah, no, I, I know, I know where you're coming from. But obviously we can't talk about AI and machine learning without considering ethics. Yes. Because that's a big, that's a big topic in the news and in the community at the moment. Like you've obviously got the horror stories around things like Cambridge Analytica, but you've also got the more general everyday stories around Facebook in general or Google and its advertising. And obviously Apple are now trying to fight back against some of this stuff, but it's still a really big live topic. And. I'm sure that your stuff is absolutely fine because you seem like an honest guy. But how do you ensure that you keep it fine?
1: Yeah, it's a very good question. Yeah, Um, we try our best. This is why it's also very interesting because uh, we met uh, lately quite a lot of startups and uh, it seems that we are the only one uh, taking care for GDPR (laughs) and privacy by design. That is really strange because we do really have a data protection officer officially certified, which is... Shows that we are really taking it seriously. Now you could say, okay, this is not really connected, but somehow the ethic starts um, with the data protection for me. Basically, you, we as a company have to make sure that the data is treated correctly, that um, everything is fine. Also for our customers, if we work with internal data, that is very, very important because we think as well that um, if you want to build trust with the customers, we have to basically be on an ethical level, right, on a high level in regard to what we want. How, how we see how, how data should be treated, right? Because data, as we all know, is mostly related to human beings. Then it's then it's getting really interesting. So it's PII. So um, we take this very, very seriously. So um, it costs us a lot of money. And uh, if you ask me, it's not quite solved because nobody in the moment knows what privacy by design really is. This is super interesting. Again, so, uh, me and the data protection officer went into this a uh, few weeks ago and we found out that, yes, there are few certificates, but nobody can really explain you what it means. So it's a kind of, it's very, very gray in the moment. Very interesting, right? Why is that? But it is like that. So we try to to do our best to define it for us.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously GDPR is a big one. And from my experience working in the past for large German corporate, I mean, German laws are pretty strict on this stuff as well in general, right? So it feels like in Germany, at least, you should have quite good startups that care about this. But it sounds like from what you've described that Maybe some of them have a little bit of work left to do.
1: Obviously, as you know, uh, we Germans, we do not have any humor at all. <laughs> we even do not uh, like to laugh. So, uh, yeah. Uh, but we have to take this very seriously. So I'm personally, as well as I'm absolutely fond about data-driven product development, I'm also very much into data protection and ethics because I think the development that we see now with Donald Trump and Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and no matter what, yeah, and hacking and so on. This is just the beginning for sure. This has just begun. And if we do not have kind of global rules of behavior in a very kind of gentleman way, this is not going to end well. I'm, I'm very, I'm very dystopic here. I have to admit, but <laughs> I think this is very, very important. Honestly, because I see the dangers coming up and we just saw basically little bits of what can be happening in the future.
0: Well, hopefully we can band together like the Avengers or something, fix it up.
1: Yeah, and so it's very important for me, you know, to 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 live in a kind of a society where we somehow agree to the ground rules, like we do in kind of traffic or whatever, exchange or um, accounting or whatever. Yeah, so whatever that means uh, for Great Britain leaving the European Union. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah well let's not talk about that but do you think but do you think that's a legislation thing or do you think that there's some codes of conduct that need to be brought together or enhanced or you know stuff like that's never going to happen just optionally right because people will just not do it because it saves them a bit of money and it saves them a bit of time right
1: yeah i'm i'm a a big fan of the magna carta principle (laughs) so i think there is a little bit of legislation involved but i think we as a society again human beings single players have to somehow commit ourselves to such thing and uh, obviously there will be individuals who will challenge that and that's okay yeah it always has been like this but if the majority is is behind such thing and understands it's good it's for the greater good and i think we are there and i do not expect miracles because i said this technological development just started you know this is so fresh it's 15 20 years old what are 15 20 years nothing this is basically just a glimpse so there's a lot of work to do yeah
0: so where can people find you after this if they want to chat more about data or product or data-driven product or any of the stuff they've heard tonight?
1: I'm absolutely happy to connect on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm available on LinkedIn. You can ping me. And I'm very happy to chat with anybody um, about, their ideas, about their ideas and concepts and learn something, of course, because I'm always uh, open as well to learn new stuff. Looking forward to the global community. That's very good. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. I will link that in and hopefully you'll start getting a bunch of people heading your way. Well, that's been a very really interesting chat and really fantastic to hear kind of your journey and how you started out and how you're planning to carry on. Uh, hopefully we can stay in touch. But as for now, thanks for taking the time. Thank you very much. As ever, thanks for listening. I hope you found it inspiring and insightful. Again, if you did, I'd love it if you could pop over to the website, one night Sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app. Make sure you share with all your friends so none of you miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.